by way of reminder, we're making our way through the book of Zechariah together as a church family. So if you haven't already, I'd, I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Zechariah. If you don't have a Bible, a couple of different things that we'd love to do for you. First of all, we'd love for you to grab an ESV scripture journal for you to use. You can write questions that you have about the text as we go through the text in the scripture journal. You can read it throughout the week. Make notes. Again, ask questions. Come on Sundays. This can be a resource for note-taking, a resource for questions, a resource for your own personal study of Zechariah as we move through this uh, book together. So that's available to you. And actually, um, if you're here this morning, it's our gift to you. So please take one. If you're a guest, if you're a visitor, um, we'd love for you to have one on your way out the door. Um, also, along the, and you can certainly get, get up and get one right now, too. Um, also, if you don't have a Bible at all and, and you'd love to have a whole copy of the Bible, because at Gospel Life we work book by book. We're going to work through um, books of the Bible, right? So value you having a Bible of your own to read through and study and follow along with us as we go. We have Bibles out on the welcome desk. We'd love for you to, welcome table, we'd love for you to take one with you. It's, again, it's our gift to you. And um, as you open, so again, page 40 in your ESV scripture journal or in your Bibles, if you find your way to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just two books back, you'll find Malachi and Zechariah um, as we begin. Let me pray for us as we start. Father, this morning we come to you with uh, a desire to learn about you, to look into your word and to find you. And so what we ask, Lord, is the, the grace and mercy that um, you give us, Lord. We, we pray for your mercy of giving us a right view of ourselves and a right understanding of who you are, a right understanding of who we are, a right understanding of who you are. We ask, Lord, that you'd help us to see both our need, our great need, and our great Savior as we look into the word today, I pray that you'd grant us the grace of conviction of sin and a seriousness, understanding of our sin, but also, Lord, a, a statement of grace and renewal in your son, the hope that we have in you. So I pray that you'd make all of this known as we open your word together today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. There are a lot of different ways that we could get to the central theme of a text together. Um, and any time that we're able to address, so here's something that, that the text is addressing, but here's also a trend in surrounding culture or in, from, in the midst of Christian circles. It's helpful to do so. So here's one way to get at it. Instant gratification is a struggle with which most of us are all too familiar, right? So let's define our terms here. What I mean by instant gratification is the immediate fulfillment of a person's needs or really more so wants, desires. Somebody wants something, immediate gratification of that, immediate fulfillment of that. But it's more than that. It can also be thought of as the foregoing of a future benefit in order to obtain a less rewarding but more immediately fulfilling desire, right? So... Um, Giving up on something in the future that long-term will be greater for something that in the short-term is not as good, but we get it right away, okay? It's, it's, it's a problem in larger culture. It's not just, it's not one of these things 
that's viewed as a problem in the scriptures, but the surrounding culture says, oh, that's not really a problem. Actually, most of Western thought is in agreement that it's a problem, also in agreement that it tends to be a problem from within the emerging generation that needs to continually be like known and addressed. It's a generational struggle in a lot of ways. And to the degree that instant gratification can be mastered, one displays wisdom, at the same time reaps great long-term benefit, right? So we're all really agreed on this. And the way we talk about instant gratification is usually in terms, understandably so, of cost-benefit analysis, right? So it's sort of like, we'll talk about it related to our finances. I think it's good to talk about it related to our finances. We'll say like, I have to have that thing, whatever that thing is now, so I'll pull out my credit card, foregoing a debt-free existence and actually burdening myself long-term for the immediate pleasure of having the thing. Right? Or, it's a real problem, right? Or we'll use that same cost-benefit analysis for talking about our diet, foregoing future health of our bodies for the immediate pleasure of junk food, our work or study habits. I'll forego the deep focus needed to do my work well, whether that's occupational work or study in a university or collegiate setting for the immediate pleasure of doom-scrolling Facebook, which I'm not sure why it's considered a pleasure, right? But we have to acknowledge we do this. The average American spends a little over two hours on Facebook during their work day. It's, it's a thing. So this is what we want. It's the immediate desire. All of this is a real problem. We forego, we forego the long-term benefit. But one area in which I think um, instant gratification gets overlook, overlooked, discussion about it, is, is how we decide what's true or not true. What I mean is, so the reason I think it might be useful for us to think in terms of instant gratification related to that is because the reason we often come to the conclusions that we come to as believers in Jesus, or really as people in general, right? The reason we come to the conclusions we come to oftentimes has less to do with whether or not what we're believing is true, and it has more to do with the immediate pleasure of approval from surrounding culture. All right. In other words, there's a more immediate pleasure in grandstanding on a particular issue that surrounding culture agrees with so that you can be praised and accepted than there is in actually determining, putting thought toward whether or not that thing is true. There is an immediate pleasure to that. There's an immediate pleasure to approval. There's an immediate pleasure to staying quiet, not speaking out even lovingly about core convictions because of the immediate pleasure of not being seen as crazy, not, not being seen a certain way. So that immediate pleasure is both like in terms of not being seen a certain way and being seen as, as right, you know, be, being approved of. Um, and, and whether, you know, so we'll come to the conclusions as to whether or not it's true or whether or not I speak up, speak up use my voice. And whether or not it's true really matters. And saying things to us, speaking truth, truth-telling, it really matters. So over the past six months, I've noticed a pretty strong trend of Christian pastors and leaders saying essentially, you know, what you think about various cultural issues actually doesn't matter very much. What matters is showing love to people who are wrestling with those issues. And let me just say, of course we should. Of course we should. Of course it matters that we show love. And of course it's true that we can communicate truth in a very unloving way. We, we really need to watch ourselves 
brothers and sisters in Christ, not to communicate truth in a way that demeans others, that belittles others, that comes with a harsh or belittling attitude towards others, absolutely true. But I found it interesting that what often gets left out or omitted from this guidance on the issue is the reality that showing love to people, wrestling with a particular issue, has to at some point include truth-telling. It has to include saying what's true. Imagine a doctor who treated his patients this way, right? Um, well, you know, what I think or believe about the treatment related to your cancer doesn't really matter. I'm just here to show you love. So, you know, you're telling me you don't want X treatment even though, like, all of my training says that it's going to save you. I don't want to offend you. So I'm not going to tell you what I think or the truth related to that. I'm just going to show you love. I would argue this is not a loving approach to one's patients. Right? Don't, don't give me that doctor. Give me the doctor that's willing to certainly lovingly but communicate true things. You know, Christians are called, uh, are those who are called to a love that includes truth-telling. Communicated lovingly, even if that truth-telling comes at a cost, rather than a holding off of the truth as though the very idea um, of truth-telling is antithetical to love. Right? Um, Christians are those who are called to a kind of love that at times must have difficult conversations. They must speak difficult-to-hear words. They must speak words that at times will come at a cost to the Christian. Relationally, uh, in terms of reputation and surrounding culture, all of that. Why, right? Um, because we're called to show love. It's not antithetical, it's part of it. But so, so many times we instead take the approach of only supporting. Why? Because we forego the long-term health given by life and truth for the immediate pleasure of acceptance and admiration and broader culture. It's true. And, you know, social media hasn't helped this tendency. It's become a place, and I'm, this isn't a rebuke on anyone for social media use because I haven't been on social media, logged on to social media in months. It's been good for my own heart. I wouldn't know if someone was or wasn't. But I think it's become a place in which we create this constant feedback, positive feedback loop for ourselves, portraying ourselves as we would like others to see us, the likes and loves and cares and comments pouring in, giving us little hits of dopamine. You know, the creators of Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, they're using, they're, they acknowledge they're using the same tactics that casinos use to um, get us addicted to slot machines um, so that we're always constantly looking. Why? It's, it's literally addiction. It's dopamine. It's li literally addiction to approval from this world. You know, it's, it's truly instant gratification, but at its root, what is it? Here's what it is at its root. It's a misplaced trust. Because here's what's happening, I think. Here's what's happening. We look on this side. And we see the powerful figure of the culture of the day. The surrounding world in which we live. Saying broken and untrue things. Promoting a way of life that stands opposed to God. Pulling people into those lies. And then we look this way. So this powerful figure on this side. And then we look this way and we see the unlikely contender from our perspective that stands against it is found in the truth of the scriptures. And, and that's portrayed by the world as backwards, ignorant, bigoted, crazy. You're like, you're crazy to believe this. And we get disappointed and dis disillusioned pretty quickly and we say, well, I guess, you know, if this over here is going to overcome the world, then it's incumbent on me to make it look better and sound better. And so we start to change. 
we start to tweak things, we start to make it sound as though I can still, largely speaking, stay in line with the world and yet be, claim it's biblical, right? We, because we're performing this quick cost-benefit analysis and we're saying, well, you know, this over here can't be defeated by this over here. So I'll forego this and all of the long-term benefits associated with this, which is like the longest-term benefits in human history, right? In order to not be obliterated by that, the short-term uh, benefit, and receiving some praise and accolades along the way uh, makes it not so bad of a deal. And yet in our text this morning, here's what we see. Two sets of characters that are intended to challenge that misplaced trust. Okay. Two sets of characters intended to challenge its readers on where they place their ultimate reliance and allegiance. Zechariah 1, 18 to 21. Set your eyes there. And I lifted my eyes and saw, <clears throat> and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head, and these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. So this is now the second vision that Zechariah sees. As I've said, we're going to be going through a series of visions here, a series of eight visions. Um, last week, last week's vision, if you haven't had a chance to, to listen to last week's, you can find it on our Apple podcast, our, our um, Spotify podcast pages. It's useful, I think. Last week, we saw that the vision ended with a statement about God's anger toward the surrounding nations, his great love for his people. And he said that the time was coming when he would come again. He's going to come again, and what he would do is upend the rest that the surrounding world was experiencing. The surrounding world, in all of their opposition to God, was unchallenged in that opposition and the day was coming when that, would, that culture was finally going to be challenged. And we see this, this happening in two sets of characters. First, four powerful figures. All right. First we see verses 18 and 19, four powerful figures. Uh, look at verse 18 with me. And I lifted my eyes. So this is a transitional phrase. Zechariah is moving from the former vision in the text to the next vision. And I saw, behold. So we talked about this last week, this word behold is meant to jar us, shake us, get our attention on the aspect of the vision that we're really supposed to be paying attention to so that we don't get like creatively speculative about what we're seeing. So behold, what are we supposed to be paying attention to? Four horns. Four horns. Okay, so uh, when we started Zechariah, I said, you know, it's useful for us to think of these visions that we're about to see as sort of like uh, living pictures. These are, these are picture paintings. We're supposed to view them in a lot of ways, right? And there are professors who actually have their students draw the visions as they go to kind of give a sense of what, what um, we're supposed to be looking at or seeing. And so the, the question arises, what kind of horn is Zechariah seeing? Some say that these are musical horns, going as far as to say that these are the horns of the temple altar. Some have suggested a kind of um, iron weapon of war, it's like an obscure Old Testament word that has that kind of a meaning. Some are applying that here to this text. But I think in the end, those suggestions fall short of the context. So what's the context? Well, let's, let's ask this question. What is it that these horns have done? Zechariah sees 
them. He asks the interpreting angel, so if you remember this character who's with Zechariah throughout seven of the eight visions, and he asks him, what are these? Just like he did in last week's text. And the angel responds, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. So last two weeks we've talked about this thing called exile. One more time to sum up, the northern kingdom and southern kingdom were both sent into exile. First in 722 BC, northern kingdom. Then in 586 BC, the major exile, the fall of Jerusalem, the southern kingdom. And so this scattering of God's people that the horns have done is referring to we see it actually in this text, the nation's coming. Scatter God's people, send them into exile. And we remember here that this scattering was the result of Israel's sin. No doubt about it, the books of the law routinely list scattering as one of the curses for, for God's people when they're disobedient, so that when we go to places like Leviticus chapter 26, it, it describes both the blessing for obedience, that Israel will be able to dwell with God in his place as his people when, the, when they're following after him. But then num number two, the punishment for disobedience when they, when they rebel against God. Um, and so in Levit Leviticus 26.33, it sums up that punishment. And I will scatter you among the nations. I will unsheathe you, uh, unsheathe the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. This is what these horns in Zechariah chapter 1 have come to do. That's what they've done to Israel. They've scattered them. They've laid to waste Jerusalem. The prophets echo this. How else are the horns described here in the chapter? Well, the angel repeats the statement about the horns in verse 21, but he adds one detail. Look at this. He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And again, there's some disagreement related to what that phrase means, but I think we do have an interpretation that fits best with the language because it could mean either that nobody came to Judah's aid, right? So these nations came, the, the horns scattered Judah so that nobody came to help them. Or it could mean that the defeat of Israel was so severe that Israel could not lift its head to fight back. And I'd argue pretty strongly for that, for that second one. It seems to be the majority interpretation. Because that phrase, so that, I think it's best translated in such proportion that, or to such a degree that, so that, um, we read, meaning that these horns have scattered Judah, to such a degree that no one from within Judah could possibly have saved themselves from it. They couldn't have risen up and fought against Babylon. They couldn't have risen their head. They're so downcast, they're so beaten down that no one can stand up to fight against it. It's impossible. That's the idea. So back to the imagery, we ask, what, so what kind of image fits with that context? And I have a difficult time looking across the storyline of the Bible and seeing how horns of the temple altar could be identified with Assyria and Babylon and the surrounding nations that are warring against Jerusalem. I have a hard time seeing how a musical instrument could have this, the response that these horns are about to have in the next set of chapters. But when we look at how the Old Testament uses imagery to describe the nations that stand against God's people, all of a sudden, we find a match. Animal horns are routinely used to convey the nations that stand opposed to God. So um, I really like the way that Joyce Baldwin puts it in her commentary. She's uh, an expert in the ancient Near East and in symbolism of the ancient Near East. And she writes, horns... The pride of the young bull are an obvious choice of symbol to represent invincible strength. 
If you're looking for a first century symbol that represents invincibility, an, an invincible strength, a strength so severe that no one could stand against it, that, that kind of, the horns, these animal horns, pride of a young bull, imagine with her the idea of an animal with horns lowering its head, stomping its feet, and charging its enemies. What happens? There's, there's damage done, there's a scattering. This imagery of the Old Testament is used to describe the military powers of nations, kingdoms that are opposed to God and his people. Daniel talks this way. In, in the book of Revelation, John borrows from Zechariah a lot in his imagery, and John talks this way uh, in terms of horns uh, representing various nations opposed to God, animal horns. And the idea behind the imagery, as Baldwin alludes to, is both power and intimidation. You know, have you, have you ever been in a fenced-in field with a bull or a ram? Growing up, my two best friends were twins that lived on a farm, spent a lot of summers at the farm. You know, I would spend a, a week at a time out there. And um, they raised sheep. They always had a ram in the pen. I'd help out with chores because the sooner we would get chores done during the summer, the quicker we could get to the business of three-wheeling and um, mini bikes and uh, anything else we wanted to do. So uh, help them out with the chores and they would always tell me, so they had a ram in the pen, they'd always tell me the key, <laughs> come on, they'd say the key to this is to be confident, you know, to not let it know that you're afraid, to be confident and you can actually step toward it and it'll run away, right? If you're confident enough, you can step toward it. Um, but it's like as a fifth grader <laughs> standing in that pen, fifth grade Jeremy Deck, not necessarily the most intimidating figure himself. Looking at this 200-pound ram staring at you with these big, thick, pointed horns, it would inevitably charge me, and my friends would laugh as I hopped back over the fence, right? And, and I would laugh on occasions when it would do the same to them, because that would happen too. Why? Because it was intimidating. Those horns are intimidating. It's really hard to get around that. And that's the idea here too. These four powerful figures, they do damage. They intimidate. And in this case, the intimidation comes from all sides, because I think that rather than creatively speculating about you know, these four horns representing four nations and then doing this work of trying to figure out which nation each horn um, represents when the interpreting angel gives us no such clues. We're better off explaining this number more straightforwardly. It's symbolic as it often was for the nations of the earth coming from all four corners, north, south, east, and west. Okay, so not only are these, what that means is, not only are these powerful figures intimidating, right, because they are, but in addition to that, they surround God's people. Like, this is the experience that God's people are having after exile. They're surrounded by their enemies who want great harm for them, and there's nothing they can do about it. But there's good news. Okay, so these are the four powerful figures. We see the second set of characters in the text now. Look at verses 20 and 21. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen, and I said, what are these coming to do? He said... So, speaking of the horns again, he says, These are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these, now the craftsmen, have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. So, who is it that comes to stand against these four powerful figures? Who's coming to the aid and the rescue of Jerusalem in exile, coming out of exile? Well, it's four craftsmen. Craftsmen, and if that sounds initially like it's a mismatch, 
If it sounds like a mistake, if it sounds like it's a middle school cornerback trying to guard Tyreek Hill, and I would have said Justin Jefferson, but it's hard for me to praise the Vikings, that's because the author intends you to feel that way. That's the sense of the text that you're supposed to get here. All right? I really think so. Um, these are four unlikely contenders. We've seen four powerful figures, but now on the other side we see four unlikely contenders. And I think this is where the creative speculation approach to reading images like this fails us. I talked about this a little bit last week, but we can often come along, uh, c- come to these images that we find in visions and spec- overly speculate about, get creative in ways that the text doesn't. We do this often in the parables too. We can get creative where the text doesn't about what's happening in the text. And so I've heard it said that what we should be imagining here in Zechariah 1, 20 to 21 are these sweaty large men with Thor-sized hammers in their hands, striking the heavy irons in the fire as they shape their swords, and now turning to face down these intimidating figures with their big smithy hammers and their still glowing swords and their muscle-bound arms. And, you know, the, you know, we hear that imagery, right? And it's like, oh, that sounds like it. The Bible's coming alive for me. But, but listen, I, I think it's wrong. And I, pe- people, the reason I think people interpret it this way, understandably so, right, is because of what happens next in the text. These craftsmen have the effect, as we just read, of terrifying the powerful figures who have terrified God's people. They do to the horns... What the horns did to God's people, they intimidate the intimidators. They cast down the ones who cast down God's people. And and so the question is, how is that possible? How How did they do that? And humanly speaking, in our finite way of thinking, it must be because these craftsmen are themselves physically intimidating, right? Like, they must be powerful enough. They must be strong enough. Physically speaking, they, they, they must look like they can deliver a beating to the ram in the pen. But the problem with this kind of, I think, overly speculate, speculated uh, creativity with the imagery. The problem with it, I think, isn't just that um, it, it, it ignores the way that the word is used, craftsmen, vast majority of instances in the Old Testament. It's not just that, that it also ignores the context, but it delivers, I believe, the opposite meaning of the text. The point of the text is lost if we understand the strength of these craftsmen to be found in the craftsmen themselves. That initial feeling that we had seeing these intimidating and powerful figures, the surrounding nations who've decimated Israel so bad that nobody could lift their heads against it, now challenged by a group of craftsmen, is the right feeling to have in the vision. We shouldn't be dissuaded from that. I want to kind of build it back up for us because our temptation is to ignore it, right? Um, It's like watching a boxing match. You have two sides, right? You have figure on this side, figure on this side. Both of them are being announced before the match begins. I want to set the stage well here. So in one one corner of the ring, you see this sprawler known as Mirko Krokop. He was this big six-foot-two, 240-pound fighter who, before he was a professional fighter, was uh, Croatian police special forces and then Croatian anti-terrorist unit and then he becomes a professional fighter just decimates his opponents three-time national boxing champion you know so you have this literally battle-hardened fighter in one corner a former mercenary now undefeated world boxing champion and then your eyes go onto the other side of the ring and you see Jeremy Deck you know like that this is the idea right um that's the feeling you you get one side this the super intimidating figure you look at the other and it's like 
Jeremy, you got to get out of there. The man is going to kill you uh, if this fight proceeds. You know, because on the one hand, in the text, it's four on four. The number here is meant to correspond with the number of horns. So you have four horns coming from the four corners of the earth, and now you have four challengers, contenders, going out to meet them. But while there are a few occurrences of craftsmen who are like the makers of weapons of war in the Old Testament, for sure, the vast majority of references to this word, craftsmen, especially in contexts like this one, which I'll explain in a minute, refer to those who constructed the tabernacle and the temple. They're the temple workers and tabernacle workers, the ones who built. Okay, so yes, this includes those who did smith work, but it's not as narrow as that. Let me show you. The craftsman who built the tabernacle, Exodus 35, 35. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver, any sort of workman or skilled designer. Listen to the craftsman that build, so this, that word workman, same word that we see in our text, craftsman. Look at 1 Chronicles 22, 15, and 16. You have an abundance of workmen, stonecutters, masons, carpenters, and all kinds of craftsmen without number, skilled in working gold, silver, bronze, and iron. Arise and work, the Lord be with you. So do you see this? The craftsmen or workmen, they, they include those who work metal, but they also include embroiderers and engravers and designers. It includes all of those craftsmen who are called upon to participate in the building of the temple and the tabernacle. That's the greatest frequency of the word craftsman in the Old Testament. And this is especially the case in this context because here in Zechariah, returning from exile, we've looked at it two weeks in a row. What are God's people being called to do? They're called, as we'll continue to see, to rebuild the temple, God's dwelling place. But that brings about this, mis that, this is exactly what brings about this misplaced trust that we talked about in the introduction the thing that leads us to this cost-benefit analysis that causes us to swing to the other side. You know, it's difficult to understand how when God's people see their enemies flourishing and surrounding them, the people who mock God and despise his word and want harm for anyone within Israel who would live according to and proclaim his word, when that's the world that now prospers and surround God's people, it's so hard to understand how the craftsmen of the temple could stand opposed to them. How rebuilding the temple could have any effect on Israel's standing in, in a world like this. This is why the prophet Haggai, Zechariah's contemporary, who is in Jerusalem alongside of Zechariah during this time. Right, he's prophesying alongside of Zechariah. Haggai rebukes God's people. We're going to look at it again, but he rebukes them for living in paneled houses while the house of God remains in ruins. And the idea here is that they've made a nice life for themselves in the midst of surrounding culture because, hey, who can stand against it anyway? So I might as well prosper, uh, at least in some ways, that the surrounding culture is prospering, but there's no use in joining God in, in that work. It won't help. Right? They've kind of abandoned temple work. But Zechariah wants to remind them of where their power comes from. He wants them to see that while it seems counterintuitive, this is how God works. God wants his people to understand that they aren't going to be the ones responsible for their own salvation. He wants them to understand they're not going to be able to save themselves. It's not going to be their own strength, their own brilliance, their own ingenuity, their own wealth or prosperity, their own military prowess, their own political strength, their own ability to like 
be seen as somebody who gets it with surrounding culture. None of that is going to save them. None of that is going to rescue them. God doesn't operate the way the world operates. He displays his power in our weakness so that we can't somehow claim the credit and say, look what I did. Look what I'm doing. Right? If a group of designers and embroiderers, yarn workers and weavers, are the ones that God uses to overthrow the military power of the surrounding nations, what can't they possibly say? They can't possibly say, look what we did. That was all us. And that's the point of the text. The craftsmen do not represent strength. They don't. They represent our weakness and God's strength. Something that we often overlook in our interpretations of Scripture because it's counterintuitive. It's not super easy to swallow. We don't naturally think about our weakness. We don't naturally think about our need. We don't even like to acknowledge it most days of the week. We don't like to think about it. So the primary point that Zechariah makes here in this text is this. And this is why we see this focus on rebuilding the temple. The ultimate victory of God's people will not come by their own strength, but by God's return. Let me say that again. The ultimate victory of God's people will not come by means of their own strength, their own power, something that they do, but rather by God's return, God coming to save them, God doing what they could never do for themselves. That's the means to their rescue, it's the means to their victory, and it's the means of their life following after him. It's the means of their life of obedience. It's only God coming to save them that will lead to their ultimate victory. It's his presence, not their power. It's his presence, not their power, that actually fuels the kind of repentance that Zechariah calls them to in the visions of this book. Do we see that? And the much more significant problem for Israel, the much more powerful figure that needed de defeated, wasn't the nations, as we'll continue to see, but their own sin. Zechariah uses imagery like this to show them their inability to save themselves in every aspect. You're unable, don't you see, you're unable to save yourself. You're unable to rescue yourself. Throw yourselves on the mercies of God. And that theme of God's strength being displayed in our weakness will continue in Zechariah. Like, we'll get to chapter 4 and we'll see the temple is said to be built, right? Not by the people's might and power, but by the Spirit of God. Right? It's counterintuitive to think that the craftsmen could be of the kind of work that defeats the nations. Well, that's because they can say it's not us, it's him. It's not, it's not by our might, but by the Spirit of God. And that theme carries through into the New Testament, in which we find the Apostle Paul saying that when he shares the gospel, his voice shakes. He's not an impressive speaker like the philosopher of the day. He's weak as he shares. Like we, we think of the apostles as these powerful teachers. Well, according to Paul, his voice is shaking in fear. When he shares the gospel. But God displays his power in Paul's weakness so that it's a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Of God's power in Paul's weakness. That theme follows us into church planting in a broken world. As we have this faith commitment that actually the Spirit of God, working through the Word of God, really does this drawing work of the Father. As we proclaim the work of the Son at the cross. Because the ultimate victory of God's people doesn't come by way of our own strength. It comes by way of God's. It doesn't come by way of our strength, but by God coming to save his people. And he did that in the person of Jesus Christ, that we might know him, that we might have him dwelling within us, that we might have his spirit 
to work through our shaking voices, when we talk to our friends and neighbors and coworkers about the hope that we have in Christ, when we engage in this ministry of truth-telling, though our voice shakes, though it comes at a cost, like we said at the front end, the Spirit of God is what works. It seems like totally ridiculous to our ears that this is how it works, but his power is made known in our weakness. I think the idea, we see it in John chapter 16. Uh, you know, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking to us, too, as his disciples. He says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Right? So Jesus says, I, in the midst of the brokenness of the world around us, I want you to have peace. But he doesn't say then, peace comes from the reality that there's actually no concern about the surrounding world. You'll have plenty of opportunities to have approval from the surrounding world. No problems there. No, he says, he says actually the opposite. He says the world will give you trouble. In the world, you will have tribulation. He says the opposite. He says, listen, in chapter 15, he says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So he says, this is, it, is a, it is a problem. The world will give you trouble. The world will give you tribulation as a follower of Christ. It does come at great cost. But then he said, he, he, notice what he doesn't say. But take heart, you can overcome the world. But take heart, you know, if you're persuasive enough, if you engage in the right politics, if you're loud and vocal enough and angry enough, if you, whatever, then you can overcome. He doesn't say that either. He says, take heart, I have overcome the world. So where do we place our trust? We place our trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what does the gospel do in us? The good news of Christ shapes us to then engage a, world, a, a broken world, yes, with truth-telling, but in love. And so what do we do together weekly? We proclaim this gospel to one another, to our hearts repeatedly here at the table, that we can be reminded that we can't possibly save ourselves, that we can be reminded that the ultimate victory of God's people doesn't come by our own strength, but by God coming to save his people in Christ Jesus. And so now we come to the table. If you're here this morning and you're a believer, this meal is for you. This represents the means by which we um, have, have saving faith in Jesus Christ, that by his body broken for us, his blood shed for us, we now have life in him. And so if you're a believer, I'm going to invite you forward in a, morning, in a minute uh, this morning. So come forward and take the elements. If you're not a believer, I ask you to participate by observing, asking questions. Certainly, um, I'm available for Q&A immediately following the sermon. But uh, I invite you now to come and take of the elements back to your seats.